Good evening. Thank you very much. I, uh, I noticed today as I was in the hotel room getting ready that uh, Colin Powell is also here today. Uh, we were going to coordinate our tours, uh, and uh, he was a little worried that I'd siphon off the crowds, but uh, it looks like he did okay. Um, I'm very happy to be here today, although I, I admit that when I am in uh, libraries in Cambridge, I get uh, exam flashbacks. I start getting uh, breaking out into cold sweats. But uh, this is, in fact, the first time that I've been uh, to the Cambridge Public Library, which shows you the kind of life we lead over at the law school. Uh, we don't uh, leave campus too much. Um, a little bit about m myself and the book, uh, a little preface. Uh, as was said in the introduction, my father was a black African, and my mother uh, was a, a white American. And much of my life was spent trying to reconcile the terms of my birth, uh, that divided heritage, with the realities of race and nationality, uh, tribal identities uh, that exist not just in this country but also overseas. Uh, so that this book is not so much a memoir, I think, as, as sort of a, a journey of discovery for me, some sense of trying to make sense of my family. And, and family is always a complicated thing, but it's, it was a little bit more complicated for me. Uh, and, and part of that process of me understanding my family ends up understanding the larger forces that shaped my family. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time, it's time to, to speak out. out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will be We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring me down. children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. Uh, the first section of the book in particular talks about my grandparents and my mother's 
family uh, who grew up in uh, such uh, uh, metropolises as uh, Peru, Kansas, and uh, El Dorado, Kansas, uh, were not uh, sophisticates, were not uh, uh, even liberal, uh, were about as mid-American as you could get. Uh, really, if you, if you look at pictures of my grandparents, and there, there's a picture on the, on the cover of the book, uh, and particularly in their older years, they looked like they walked straight out of American Gothic. Uh, on the other side, my father's tribe, my father's family, came from a small Kenyan village uh, on the shores of Lake Victoria. Uh, and sometimes we forget in some of the racial conflict that takes place in this country uh, that contact between the West and Africa and the West in Kenya and my father's village in particular was relatively recent so that my grandfather on my father's side was the first uh, or one of the first Africans, black men, to ever see and meet and have direct contact with a white person. Uh, and this happened as recently as uh, 1895. So that you have these widely divergent cultures coming together. And as a child, a lot of the conflicts that potentially arise out of that were tamped down in my life because they met in Hawaii. And they met at a time uh, that was full of idealism. It was during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Hawaii, as it is, had sort of almost a mythic uh, reputation of being multicultural. And so that my parents were swept up in the idealism of that time and, and the hopefulness of that time, the sense that you might be able to create in this country uh, a, a nation that was built on a sense of community and equity and fairness. And as we know, many of those dreams of my parents ended up fraying uh, as time went on. Their marriage broke apart, but also I think the hopes and dreams of the nation began to crumble uh, in the later 60s. And so I end up coming into adolescence uh, at a time when uh, the tensions between the races, even in a place like Hawaii, are becoming more pronounced. And sort of the identity politics that uh, is so pronounced today uh, was already starting to uh, come to the fore. So the section that I'm going to read uh, for you right now uh, takes place during my adolescence. Uh, and I'm a very angry man, right, uh, young man, at the time that this passage takes place. Uh, you know, partly because my father is absent, partly because I'm trying to struggle what does it mean exactly to be a black man in, Amer in America? Uh, partly because I'm sufficiently isolated in Hawaii without a large African-American community, without uh, father figures around that might guide me and steer my anger. Uh, what I end up relying on are the images and stereotypes that are coming through the media. And, and I'm having to patch together and piece together exactly what it means for me to, uh, uh, to be both African and an American. So the passage that I'm going to read right now takes place right after a party. Uh, and what's happened is, is that typically when I went to parties in high school, oftentimes there were three or four black people in a room of 300. Uh, so finally, a black friend of mine and myself decided to invite some white friends to a black party out in an army base. Uh, out in uh, Schofield Barracks, one of the major army bases in Hawaii. And we immediately sense that they're a little uncomfortable. 
being in this minority situation. Uh, you know, they're sort of trying to tap their foot to the beat. You know, and they're, they're you know, uh, being extraordinarily friendly. And uh, after a while, they decide, after about half an hour, they say, well, Barack, let's, let's get going. Uh, you know, we're feeling kind of tired. We're feeling this or that. And suddenly, th this sense that uh, what I have had to put up with every day of my life uh, is something that they find uh, so objectionable that they can't even put up with it for a day. And these are good friends of mine and, and, and uh, 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 folks who, who had uh, stood by me for many years. Uh, it, it, something is triggered in my head, and I suddenly start seeing, as I say in this passage, a new map of the world. Uh, a couple of other notes of explanation. As I work through this anger, this sense of betrayal, uh, I discover that I, I'm feeling that same sense of betrayal from my family. It all starts coming together. And some of the characters in the book, there will be Gramps, in this passage, rather. Uh, Gramps is my grandfather. Uh, Toot is my grandmother. Uh, that's short for Tutu, which in Hawaii means grandmother. At the time, when I was born, she decided she was too young to be called Granny, so, or Grams, so we called her Toot. And the passage finally ends with me having a conversation with a close friend of my maternal grandfather, a close friend of Gramps, a black man from Kansas named Frank, uh, actually a, a, at the time a fairly well-known poet uh, named Frank Marshall Davis who had moved to Hawaii and lived there. Uh, and so I have a discussion with him about the kinds of frustrations I'm having and, and uh, he sort of schools me on uh, that I should get used to uh, these frustrations. So let me dig in. We started down the road towards town, and in the silence, my mind began to rework Ray's words that day with Kurt. All the discussions we'd had before that, the events of that night. And by the time I had dropped my friends off, I had begun to see a new map of the world, one that was frightening in its simplicity, suffocating in its implications. We were always playing on the white man's court, Ray had told me, by the white man's rules. If the principal, or the coach, or a teacher, or Kurt wanted to spit in your face, he could, because he had power and you did not. If he decided not to, if he treated you like a man or came to your defense, it was because he knew that the words you spoke, the clothes you wore, the books that you read, your ambitions and desires were already his. Whatever he decided to do, it was his decision to make, not yours, and because of that fundamental power he held over you, because it proceeded and would outlast his individual motives and inclinations, any distinction between good and bad whites held negligible meaning. In fact, you couldn't even be sure that everything you had assumed to be an expression of your black unfettered self, the humor, the song, the behind-the-back pass, had been freely chosen by you. At best, these things were a refuge. At worst, a trap. Following this maddening logic, the only thing you could choose as your own was withdrawal into a smaller and smaller coil of rage until being black meant only the knowledge of your own powerlessness and your own defeat. And the final irony, should you refuse this defeat and lash out at your captors, they would have a name for that too, a name that could cage you just as good, like paranoid or militant or violent or nigger.
Over the next few months, I looked to corroborate this nightmare vision of mine. I gathered up books from the library, Baldwin, Ellison, Hughes, Wright, Dubois. At night, I would close the door to my room, telling my grandparents I had homework to do, and there I would sit and wrestle with words, locked in suddenly desperate argument, trying to reconcile the world as I had found it with the terms of my birth. But there seemed to be no escape to be had. In every page of every book, in Bigger Thomas and Invisible Men, I kept finding the same anguish, the same doubt, a self-contempt that neither irony nor intellect seemed able to deflect. Even Dubois' learning in Baldwin's love and Langston's humor eventually succumbed to its corrosive force. Each man finally forced to doubt art's redemptive power. Each man finally forced to withdraw, one to Africa, one to Europe, one deeper into the bowels of Harlem, but all of them in the same weary flight, all of them exhausted bitter men, the devil at their heels. Only Malcolm X's autobiography seemed to offer something different. His repeated acts of self-creation spoke to me the blunt poetry of his words. His insistence on respect promised a new and uncompromising order, martial in its discipline, forged through sheer force of will. All the other stuff, the talk of blue-eyed devils and apocalypse, was incidental to that program, I decided. Religious baggage that Malcolm himself seemed to have safely abandoned towards the end of his life. And yet, even as I imagined myself following Malcolm's call, one line in the book stayed with me. For he spoke of a wish he'd once had, the wish that the white blood that ran through him there by an act of violence might somehow be expunged. I knew that for Malcolm, that wish would never be incidental. I knew as well that traveling down the road to self-respect my own white blood would never recede into mere abstraction. So I was left to wonder what else I would be severing if and when I left my mother and my grandparents at some uncharted border. And two, if Malcolm's discovery towards the end of his life that some whites might live beside him as brothers in Islam seemed to offer some hope of eventual reconciliation, that hope appeared in a distant future, in a far-off land. Where were the people who would work towards this future and populate this new world? After a basketball at the university one day, Ray and I happened to strike up a conversation with a tall, gaunt man named Malik who played with us now and again. Malik mentioned that he was a follower of the Nation of Islam. But since Malcolm had died and he had moved to Hawaii, he no longer went to mosque or political meetings, although he still sought comfort in solitary prayer. One of the guys sitting nearby must have overheard us, for he leaned over with a sagacious expression on his face. Y'all talking about Malcolm, huh? Malcolm tells us like it is, no doubt about it. Yeah, another guy said. But I tell you what, you won't see me moving to no African jungle anytime soon. Or some goddamn desert somewhere sitting on a carpet with a bunch of Arabs. No, sir. And you, you won't see me stop eating no ribs either. <laughs> Gotta have them ribs. And pussy too. Don't Malcolm talk about no pussy? Now you know that ain't gonna work. I noticed Ray laughing and looked at him sternly. What are you laughing at? I said to him. You never even read Malcolm. You don't even know what he says. 
Ray grabbed the basketball out of my hand and headed for the opposite rim. I don't need no book to tell me how to be black, he shouted over his head. I started to answer, then turned to Malik, expecting some words of support. But the Muslim said nothing, his bony face set in a faraway smile. I decided to keep my own counsel after that, learning to disguise my feverish mood. A few weeks later, though, I awoke to the sound of an argument in the kitchen, my grandmother's voice barely audible, followed by my grandfather's deep growl. I opened my door to see Toot, that's my grandmother, entering the bedroom to get dressed for work. I asked her what was wrong. Nothing. Your grandfather just doesn't want me to drive me to work this morning, that's all. I entered the kitchen and saw Gramps was muttering under his breath. He poured himself a cup of coffee as I told him that I'd be willing to give Toot a ride to work if he was feeling tired. This was a bold offer, for I did not like to wake up early. He scowled at my suggestion. That's not the point. She just wants to make me feel bad. I'm sure that's not it, Gramps. Of course it is. He sipped from his coffee. She's been catching the bus ever since she started at the bank. She said it was more convenient. And now, just because she gets pestered a little, she wants to change everything. Toot's diminutive figure hovered in the hall, peering at us from behind her bifocals. That's not true, Stanley. I took Toot into the other room and asked her what had happened. A man asked me for money yesterday while I was waiting for the bus. That's all? Toot's lips pursed with irritation. He was very aggressive, Barry, very aggressive. I gave him a dollar and he kept asking. If the bus hadn't come, why, I think he might have hit me over the head. Gramps was rinsing his cup when I returned to the kitchen. His back was turned to me. Listen, I said, Gramps, why don't you just let me give her a ride after all? She seems pretty upset. By a panhandler? Yeah, I know, but it's probably a little scary for her seeing some man block her way. It's really no big deal. He turned around and I saw now that he was shaking. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to me. She's been bothered by men before. You know why she's so scared this time? I'll tell you why. Before you came in, she told me the fellow was black. He whispered the word. That's the real reason why she's bothered. And I just don't think that's right. His words were like a fist in my stomach, and I wobbled to regain my composure. In my steadiest voice, I told him that such an attitude bothered me too, but assured him that Toot's fears would pass and that we should give her a ride in the meantime. Gramps slumped into a chair in the living room and said he was sorry he had told me. Before my eyes, he grew small and old and very sad. I put my hand on his shoulder and told him that it was all right I understood. We remained like that for several minutes in painful silence. Finally, he insisted that he drive Toot after all and, I, and struggled up from his seat to get dressed. After they left, though, I sat on the edge of my bed and thought about my grandparents. They had sacrificed again and again for me, 
They had poured all their lingering hopes into my success. Never had they given me reason to doubt their love, and I doubted if they ever would. And yet I knew that men who might easily have been my brothers could still inspire their rawest fears. That night, I drove into Waikiki, past the bright-lit hotels and down towards the Alawai Canal. It took me a while to recognize the house with its wobbly porch and low-pitched roof. Inside, the light was on and I could see Frank sitting in his overstuffed chair, a book of poetry in his lap, his reading glasses slipping down his nose. I sat in the car, watching him for a time, then finally got out and tapped on the door. The old man barely looked up as he rose to undo the latch. It had been three years since I'd seen him. Want a drink? He asked me. I nodded and watched him pull down a bottle of whiskey and two plastic cups from the kitchen cupboard. He looked the same, his mustache a little whiter, dangling like dead ivy over his heavy upper lip, his cut-off jeans with a few more holes and tied at the waist with a length of rope. So how's your grandpa? He's all right. So what are you doing here? I wasn't sure. I told Frank some of what had happened. He nodded and poured us each a shot. Funny cat, your grandfather, he said. You know, we, make, we grew up maybe 50 miles apart. I shook my head. We sure did. Both of us lived near Wichita. We didn't know each other, of course. I was long gone by the time he was old enough to remember anything. I might have seen some of his people, though. Might have passed them on the street. If I did, I would have had to step off the sidewalk to give him room. Your grandpa ever tell you about things like that? I threw the whiskey down my throat, shaking my head again. No, Frank said. I don't suppose he would have. Stan doesn't like to talk about that part of Kansas much. Makes him uncomfortable. Why, he told me once about a black girl they hired to look after your mother. A preacher's daughter, I think it was told me how she became a regular part of the family. That's how he remembers it, you understand? This girl coming in to look after somebody else's children, her mother coming in to do somebody else's laundry, a regular part of the family. I reached for the bottle, this time pouring my own. Frank wasn't watching me now. His eyes were closed his head leaning against the back of his chair, his big wrinkled face like a carving of stone. You can't blame your grandfather for what he is, Frank said. He's basically a good man. But he doesn't know me any more than he knew that girl that looked after your mother. He can't know me, not the way I know him. Maybe some of these Hawaiians can, or the Indians on the reservation. They've seen their fathers humiliated, their mothers desecrated. But your grandfather will never know what that feels like. That's why he can come over here and drink my whiskey and fall asleep in that chair you're sitting in right now. Sleep like a baby. See, that's something I can never do in his house. Never. Doesn't matter how tired I get, I still have to watch myself. I have to be vigilant for my own survival. 
Frank opened his eyes. What I'm trying to tell you is your grandma's right to be scared. She's at least as right as your grandpa is. She understands that black people have a reason to hate. That's just how it is. For your sake, I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. So you might as well get used to it. Frank closed his eyes again. His breathing slowed until he seemed to be asleep. I thought about waking him, then decided against it and walked back to the car. The earth shook under my feet, ready to crack open at any moment. I stopped, trying to steady myself, and knew for the first time that I was utterly alone. Okay, I am available for questions or comments. Right there. What motivates you to write the book? And I assume you work full time at another job. How did you organize yourself to actually write a whole book? You know, I wish I had asked myself that question before I started writing. <laughs> um, what motivated me? Uh, when I was elected, uh, as I write about in the introduction, when I was elected uh, president of the, uh, the law review here at Harvard, that generated quite a bit of publicity. And so immediately, you know, there's this entire industry of, of agents and folks who's, you know, uh, if you get your little 15 minutes of fame, they'll call you and see, you know, if, if uh, we, I suppose, can make some money on it. Um, and I think the idea that they had initially was sort of a, uh, sort of a feel-good story, you know, it's a young black man, successful, and then I had to explain to them, you know, this is kind of complicated, you know, what's going on here. And at the time, I was thinking about writing more of an academic uh, treatise, uh, you know, because I wasn't very happy with sort of the terms of the public policy debate surrounding racial issues. Uh, what happened is, as, as I began to write it, uh, and I had been keeping journals for quite some time. What I realized is, is that if I had anything unique or useful to offer, that uh, it probably had more to do with the stories of my life. Um, you know, what I realized, and, and partly this is, comes from my background as a community organizer, where uh, the way you organize community, give them a sense of solidarity or meaning in their lives, a lot of times has to do with sharing stories. Uh, and there's a long tradition in the African-American uh, community of sharing stories, uh, of, of storytelling, and, and in African traditions, the griot, sharing a story. And so I, I guess I felt that I, I, I ended up being drawn to the idea of sharing a story and, and thought that my family might be a useful prism to understand uh, uh, some of the complexities of, of racial issues, which gets so simplified when they're debated on Crossfire, or the McLaughlin group, or what have you. Um, so that, that, that's, that, that was the initial impulse. Um, and I think there was a certain amount of expiation that took place uh, because, I, you know, uh, although by that time I was well established and, you know, uh, I guess by conventional terms, successful or on my way to success, uh, there was a lot of unworked through stuff that I had to write down, 
you know, clarify for myself. In terms of organizing to write a book, uh, it wasn't very organized. <laughs> uh, I got an initial advance, which gave me sort of a jump. Uh, it allowed me to go back to Kenya, do some more research, because the last section of the book talks about Kenya. Um, and so I started writing, but then immediately, uh, during the 1992 election cycle, uh, I was approached by a number of people in Chicago to run a voter registration campaign, and I decided I'd do that, uh, much to the chagrin of my initial publishers. Uh, but I thought the 1992 election was important, and, and uh, uh, the work needed to be done. So it, it essentially, and right after that, I started working as a civil rights attorney. And so what I had to do was what I imagine uh, most first-time writers do, which is, you know, you write in the evenings, uh, you write on the weekends. Uh, my wife, who, who was foolish enough to, uh, to marry me right in the middle of this thing, um, didn't see much of me for uh, uh, the first uh, two years or so that we were married. Um, and I had to take some leaves of absence for a month or two once the first draft was written to, uh, to try to polish it up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Increase the uh, sort of push to have multi ethnic uh -huh. as a political category. And two, um, can you say a bit more about how you managed to sort of get record numbers of voters out in Chicago in just six months? Sure. Um, uh, in, in terms of the multicultural uh, sort of check off box on census reports and things like that, uh, I, I understand the impulse. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the impulse. Uh, in the end, I guess I don't agree with the strategy. Uh, uh, this goes back to a constant debate about should we pretend that we've got a colorblind society, uh, or on the other hand, is everything racial, everything tribal? Uh, and I guess uh, I don't believe in those simplifications. Uh, I think uh, you know Dr. King described it as a uh, uh, the need for us to move from a either-or mentality to a but-and mentality, and 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 I think. The, the, the truth of it is, is that uh, uh, we share a great deal in common amongst the tribes. We have to continually work towards and affirm that commonality. But we have very different historical circumstances. Uh, and that, you know, I think William Faulkner said, you know, the, the past is never dead and buried. It's not even past. Well, that's certainly true when it comes to racial issues. And so, the notion that somehow changing a census box uh, will free up uh, someone who's quote-unquote multicultural so that they will now be able to live as individuals as opposed to categorized into groups uh, just strikes me as naive and potentially uh, damaging from, uh, from a political standpoint. Uh, you know, I think that, if anything, it just creates one more category. So now we have coloreds in America, uh, you know, and uh, there, there was a long fight in South Africa to to overturn that. So, so I, yeah, I guess that the, the simplest way to answer your question is if I'm in New York City uh, trying to catch a cab, I can't hold up a little sign saying, I'm multicultural. Yeah. Well, you know, this is only because I'm, I'm decked out for this reading. Now, you know, if I, if I had my, my homie look, then, uh, then I might have some problems. So, the, uh, so I, I hope that answers your question. As far as voter registration, um, you know, we live in a very uh, cynical time about politics. Uh, 1992, there was a window of opportunity where I think, having come out of the uh, 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 
the reagan and bush era i think there was and the cold war being over there was some sense that now was a time where we could look inward and do something domestically and in the african american community there was some sense of optimism i think partly because president clinton tapped into some good rhetoric right he said some right things about community about mutual responsibility about refocusing and redoubling our efforts to do something about the inner cities and so we were able in some ways to work off of the energy that was being driven during that campaign most of it is not rocket science it's just hard work what you have to do is you have to go into churches you have to go into sororities you have to and recruit volunteers and train those volunteers and be systematic about you know putting them in spots throughout the city and and it also costs money and so you have to you know raise money for it but in the end it really has to do with being able to link together people's understanding that their self interest is tied to the political process and that is very difficult to do if you're in a situation in Robert Taylor Homes let's say where which is a large public housing development in Chicago a notorious public housing development where things seem to people feel like things are always happening to them and they're not active agents and so a lot of groundwork has to be laid to explain that no in fact you are an active agent you know and sometimes you talk about welfare cuts and that if you don't vote somebody's going to cut your your welfare sometimes you as people develop you can engage them in more sophisticated arguments about you know the potential power of a minority particularly in primaries but it's difficult work there's no easy magic solution to it I'll give these two folks a chance then I'll come back to you go ahead share a little more maybe if it actually continued about your feelings of isolation as they were generated by the reality of the fact that you were are biracial and are bicultural, I suppose even though over time you might feel more one than the other, right. just I would think that would be a lingering um, feeling regardless. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that sense of uh, what what I discovered, and and I try to write about this in the book, is that I guess that the solution for me to that sense of isolation was to throw myself into a community uh, to basically uh, decide and I it wasn't articulated in my mind at the time but in retrospect I can see what I was doing um, I ended up uh, deciding that my individual fate had to be tied to something larger than myself uh, that uh, my individual salvation would only come from a collective salvation of some sort uh, that my true sense of self would only come if I had some sense of community. And so uh, what I internally, I think, did was to uh, sort of reach back into uh, that period of time that, that my parents came together, the Civil Rights Movement. And I, I think I internalized a sense uh, that this country had, that this nation had in the early 60s, that we could transform community, that we could break isolation. Uh, I think part of the impulse for my parents marrying each other, you've got a, a white woman from a, 
a lower middle class background in, in a small starched you know, uh, town in, in Kansas. Now she marries an African. Well, something's going on there. I mean, part of what's going on, and she's you know, the, the most wonderful woman I know. And, and part of what was going on with her was she's trying to break out of the isolation and stultification and, and uh, constraints of her upbringing. My father, on the other hand, he's trying to break out of his own sense of isolation. He is a transitional figure, someone who's moving essentially from the 18th century directly into the 21st out of a small Kenyan village into you know, a Harvard PhD program uh, you know, in one fell swoop. So he's suddenly recognizing that uh, his life uh, is isolated, that there's this modern world that's swirling about him and that he's got to take control of that in some fashion. And so I think part of the impulse that brought them together had to do with breaking their isolation. I think this nation was going through some, the same sense when Freedom Riders went down uh, from the north to, to uh, register voters and break down segregation in the south. That's an exercise in breaking through isolation. Uh, and so I think that subconsciously at least, I ended up hearkening back to that time and, and became a community organizer. And what I discovered through the work that I did in Chicago uh, was that uh, um, by sharing stories, as I said, by um, understanding that the experiences of my grandfather in Kansas, uh, who, you know, sort of had an unsavory past, and his father left him and uh, left his mother. His mother ended up committing suicide. He was always sort of, you know, I guess what might be considered poor, white trash. Um, you know, that, that his story, his needs, his hungers weren't that different from a young man that I'm looking at, an 18-year-old in Chicago whose father's left him and whose mother's maybe uh, smoking crack and he's trying to make his way and I'm working with him. Uh, once you start seeing those stories and, and, and digging beneath the, the surface, uh, then you can reclaim a connection. And, and I guess one of the things that, that uh, I think that translates to politically is, is a sense that if we work through these, Racial harmony is not going to come by us holding hands and singing kumbaya. Uh, that uh, understanding has to be earned. It has to be worked for. And there are sacrifices involved. Uh, and I think that breaking isolation requires work and sacrifice. Uh, and I think that's how I ended up reconciling it. So, did, was that a two, were there, was there a second question? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen back. That was sort of what I had in mind. I wondered what, uh, what you envisioned in your writing and uh, community activity. What kind of a vision, realistically, you can see for America? Uh, I think you just began to touch on it, but maybe you can say more about it. What, what, are there any examples in the world, in history, or any model for what you uh, would like to see that you really think is realistically achievable in the United States in the near future, like the next decade. Yeah, well, I, it, from what you read, it doesn't sound very optimistic. Well, it sounds like pain rather than... Well, keep in mind, as I said, the uh, this passage that I read was... Uh, uh, right, I'm 16 years old. Right. Young men are just angry generally. Are you, are you right, it's a testosterone kind of thing. Have you gotten over that? Because I've gathered that there's a lot of that going around, a lot of rage, but are you saying that you are not uh, one of the 
people that I read about in Newsweek, which had a whole issue. Oh, right, the, the Rage of the Privileged class. Uh, which I think I could understand entirely. I think I would feel that way too. Uh, is that something that is just a period that's going to be, be over, or I, I can see that's going to last? You know, uh, I, I end the book uh, on an optimistic note. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is a comedy as opposed to a tragedy, um, this particular book. So I, I do work through the anger that I personally experience in my own life. But as I said, I think it, it gets uh, uh, transformed into uh, an insistence on creating a politics that can address our past. Uh, I am the whole country. Uh, and, you know, I, am, I remain optimistic about America. I, I remain, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I believe in the, that we can appeal to the better angels of our nature. And I think that, you know, my wife likes to say, she, uh, a black woman who grew up in the south side of Chicago all her life, working class family, she, uh, she likes to say, and I think this is true, that black folks are the most forgiving people because they've had the most practice. Uh, and, and, and I think that's true. I, I, you know, the, the, this whole notion of black anger and black rage, uh, you know, I think uh, is greatly overstated considering uh, what a brutal experience it has been in this country. And my, I am always struck by how, even though black folks may talk about white folks sort of in the generic sense, that most black folks always have an open hand to individual whites. And that if there was any sense that this country was making a serious effort to address the problems that have resulted from slavery and segregation in this country and that continue, uh, that I think you would see an outstretched arm from the other side. It requires the whites to participate too. And well, you know, the, uh, that's where my optimism comes in, and, and maybe this is naivete. Sometimes, you know, black folks think I'm a little naive. Uh, but I, I guess I think that uh, basically Americans are decent people. I think the problem with Americans, and this is obviously a large generalization, so you will excuse me as I generalize about Americans. Um, Americans don't like to sacrifice. This generation in particular does not like to sacrifice. Our whole politics is geared towards not wanting to sacrifice and trying to do everything on the cheap. And solving the racial problems in this country at this stage has very much to do with economics and class and dealing with entire generations and segments of the society that uh, need help. And that's going to cost some money. And that's going to require some sacrifice. I think that the politi current political climate can change. And I think that if you talk to young people, um, I think there have been changes. Uh, so I'm not one of these people who says that uh, nothing's changed. Uh, I think it's the best of times and the worst of times uh, for race relations in this country. Harvard today, and he's very pessimistic. That's my interpretation. Well, he thinks democracy isn't, gonna work, isn't working. Well, you know, Cornell West has to go back to his Bible, right? You've got to have faith. 
You know, the... Uh... Got to have faith. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I say that facetiously, but, but I do think that there is an element of faith involved in this project of democracy. Uh, there's an element of faith involved in, uh, in, in the notion that you can create a society in a country that uh, doesn't all look alike and sound alike and talk alike. That's a, it's, a, it's a profound experiment, and it's not over with. Uh, but but I, I continue to see uh, openings there, and, and the question is whether we have the will and the resolve to uh, take advantage of those openings. Uh, go ahead, right here. Uh, so I guess out of all the cities in the United States you lived in, I mean, which one would you feel the, the most comfortable in? Well, you know, I, I feel deeply at home in Chicago, partly because I think Chicago is similar to... Uh, uh, in some ways, my Kansas roots, even though I never lived in Kansas. But it's got that Midwestern. Yeah, but I, 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 I'm reminded of my wedding, where my grandmother, Toot, who I just read this passage, she's about 4'11", a little white lady from Kansas. And, uh, she came down to the south side, where we were getting married, and she came to my mother-in-law's house. And, you know, she's, uh, this is a woman who, like, uh, was a banker, right? So she, she's a little white. Kansas banker lady. <laughs> and she's walking in the middle of the south side of Chicago, and you know, she's probably feeling a little tense about it. And she walks in and, and she sees sort of the spread that my mother-in-law's put out. And immediately her, light, uh, her eyes light up, right? Because there's uh, macaroni and cheese, <laughs> and you know, coleslaw, and uh, succotash, and, and other things that I don't eat, jello molds, you know? And uh, it, it, it seems funny, but, but there was a, an immediate connection there, and I think it has to do with some sense. And, and uh, my mother-in-law reminds me uh, very much of my, of my grandmother in terms of some basic sensibilities, a certain stoicism, an unwillingness to complain and gripe all the time about things just to get on with it. Um, so, so I feel comfortable in Chicago for that reason. Uh, Chicago is a highly segregated city, and, and that uh, creates discomfort. Um, not so much for me because since I work in, in a wide circle, you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I can, I can move in a lot of different uh, neighborhoods. But uh, it, it lacks the cosmopolitan feel of, say, New York. Uh, and I confess that when I go on a vacation and, you know, take a weekend in New York and I'm just walking down the street and I'm hearing, you know, uh, you know uh, Pakistani over here and I hear, you know, uh, uh, you know, Creole over here, uh, that, you know, that makes me feel sort of that I'm part of this wider world. And, uh, you know, us folks in the Midwest, we're landlocked, so we, we sometimes kind of forget that. But uh, why don't I take one more question? Go ahead. Um, yeah, I had actually two unrelated <coughs> questions. Okay, I'll um, see if I can. Your choice, whichever. All right. But um, the first is if you could describe a little bit what you learned when you were in Africa, or what you brought back. And the second question was, um, you could tell us what your civil rights law practice is like. Okay. Uh, as far as Africa, the, as I said, the entire book ends uh, in Africa. My, it, it was an interesting process for me because uh, my personal journey to discover very directly who my family was, I think, mirrors. Uh, uh, a more abstract sense of a lot of African Americans that they need to go back and reclaim their roots. 
Um, and a, a further parallel exists because in the same way that I think I had looked at my father as sort of an idealized image, uh, so does the African-American community, I think, tend to idealize Africa, look at it through rose-tinted glasses, um, if it thinks about it at all. Now, you know, part of that is counteracting uh, years of feeling ashamed about Africa. So uh, going back, I think, for me uh, was to embrace at least a partial truth about Africa, which is that there's good in Africa and there's bad in Africa. Uh, that uh, there, there's great joy and much to be learned from Africa, uh, but that there is also much uh, to be uh, to be discarded about certain African traditions. Uh, a, a very specific example is the sexism that exists in Africa, um, which I think debilitates the country. So, you know, I, I think that's more than anything what I brought back. Um, until you get to sort of a more mystical plane where, I mean, it is true that when you're on the Serengeti and you're looking out across the expanse, uh, uh, time feels different and you bring back something I think that uh, is different and, and stays in you. Um, but I, I know, for example, I took my wife back uh, and as I said, she grew up in the south side of Chicago and uh, what she realized was that she was an American. I think it, very profoundly she realizes. Now she's you know, a very uh, beautiful, regal, African-looking, brown-skinned sister. You know, and she goes there and we go up to my grandmother's village and first of all she's riding in matatus, these little jitneys that are bumping along the road and there are chickens on her laps and you know, she's, you know, what was that game when, when we were kids, right? And you put your twist, right, that's, that's how it feels. And uh, um, so we get up there and, and my little cousins, they all start pointing at her and saying, look, the, the wazungu, which means the white lady. Now, you know, for, for, for a girl from the south side of Chicago, uh, whose complexion is about like this young lady's right here, that's, uh, that's sort of a stunning uh, it's sort of a, uh, welcome. Uh, but, but beyond the superficial things, I think what, what you realize when you go back is, is that uh, uh, African-Americans already partake of a hybrid culture. You know, we, we are part of a hybrid culture, and, and we can't deny that. Uh, so in some ways, you know, the, the more obvious uh, uh, biracial identity that I have to uh, affirm, African-Americans also have to affirm. And white Americans have to affirm because they partake in a hybrid culture. I mean, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that American culture at this point, what is truly American, is black culture to a large degree. Flip on the television set. Look at Pulp Fiction. You know, I mean, you can choose whatever examples you want. Um, and and uh, uh, it's had a profound influence on, on this entire nation, and it has to be uh, affirmed. Uh, in terms of my civil rights practice, it's hard. It's hard right now because uh, Reagan and Bush uh, appointed judges that are not sympathetic to uh, civil rights laws. And one of the things that uh, I always try to emphasize is, you know, there is so much debate about affirmative action uh, and very little talk about enforcement of anti-discrimination laws. Uh, you know, it is incredibly hard to bring 
a discrimination suit these days in the courts. Incredibly hard. First of all, you've got corporations who are willing to spend half a million, 750000 a million dollars worth of legal fees to defend one case. Uh, you've got a black plaintiff or a woman plaintiff on the other side who, if she can find a lawyer who's willing to take the case on contingency, is still looking at forty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of just costs. These aren't legal fees, just costs. Uh, they get worn down, and then you have a court that is, it has cramped readings of, uh, of uh, existing laws. And so, you know, I've, I just finished uh, a case where a, a black man who was the only black employee in a sales force of 150, uh, the first week on the job, his manager, who is now the CEO of a company, which is a Fortune 500 company, uh, uh, pointed to him while standing next to a customer and said, see, I don't have to worry about the EEOC. I've got my nigger in the window. He said, you know, and, and this is not uncommon. Uh, and so, you know, the uh, uh, conservatives have been very effective in using uh, the uh, moniker uh, politically correct to sort of beat back uh, the progress we've made in terms of decency and civility. But uh, I, I think that uh, uh, well-meaning citizens would be well-served to take a look at um, anti-discrimination laws and how they're being enforced, because at least theoretically, most conservatives still say that they believe in anti-discrimination laws. They just don't believe in affirmative action. In practice, however, uh, it's, it, it's very hard to uh, apply those laws in a, a just and equitable way. So. Okay. Thank you very much. One last question. Okay. Why didn't I put any pictures in the book? You know, I, I guess the, uh, I don't know, the, the, there was a part of me that thought, you know, pictures are like for, you know, Frank Sinatra writes his autobiography, you know. <laughs> you know, then people want to see him dancing with uh, Mia Farrow or something. Uh, uh, I, I, I think part of it was, uh, as I was writing, I really wanted this to be a work of, the imagination in some way. I wanted to read. I wanted it to read like a story, um, and not uh, a memoir. Uh, and but the, now the pictures on the front are relatives. So the, uh, the 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 two white folks here are my grandfather and my grandmother, and the Africans are my grandmother on my father's side and my father sitting in her lap. Okay. Thank you very much.
have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you get. It's about how hard you think. Get, 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 and keep moving forward. How much you take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Yes, we can. I wanted to run out of that tunnel. For my dad. To prove to everyone that what? Public Access America. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access, Public America. Access America. History in the history making. In the making. 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 History in history the making. In the making. Looking for your next favorite podcast? Stop searching and let Potable do the work for you. Potable is the only podcast listening platform that uses artificial intelligence to recommend podcasts tailored to you. Import your favorites automatically and instantly discover countless options. Download the app in the iOS App Store or visit Potable.co to access a world of discovery. Yep, that's potable. P-O-D-I-B-L-E. Mmm, that's some good app. <laughs>